out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Does sound very exciting. Thank you, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastor, and this is the C86 Show. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop and sometimes beyond. And also, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Cherry Red Records founder and chairman, Ian McNay, who I spoke to a few months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry... Well, basically about the music industry and starting up the label. So this is the interview. Sit back, relax, enjoy. It's quality all the way. So um, this is the interview. And this is the part after our introduction and getting to know each other where I ask that fascinating question. How did it all begin? Ian, it's over to you. Okay. So, um, well, Cherry Red actually started as a promotion company in 1971 and I with two friends started to promote gigs at a place called Morven in Worcestershire and most of our gigs were at Morven Winter Gardens. Um, I didn't live in Morven, my two friends did. So that was the birth of the name Cherry Red and that the company was then called Cherry Red Promotions. And we, the, 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 the capacity of the venue was about 1,200. And I can remember the first gig was Hawkwind and Skin Alley, and the second one was Uriah Heap and Trapeze. So they were the type of acts then that we were promoting. But it was a hobby. I mean, it was a hobby that made a little bit of pocket money, but it was mainly a fun thing to do. And I'd liked music before that, but that's when I started to get involved in terms, in a more tangible way. Yes. And did you, I mean, when you were growing up, like your teen years, was, was kind of music a sort of a important part of your kind of, yes, those, those formative years? Well, it was, but I, I was, you know, I was born in 1946. And so when I was a teenager, there was no Radio 1. It was a light program. So there was, uh, the, the main thing was Radio Luxembourg in those days. So it was, and that used to have that, it used to fade in and out in the reception. So yes, I did like music. Um, I didn't go to that many gigs when I was a teenager, but I think most, most people didn't when they were that age when, and at that time. Um, the first album I bought was the first Beatles album. Um, actually, the first, the first records I bought was, I think, for my 16th birthday. I had a record token, and we didn't have... All we had was an old wind-up 78 player, so I went with my mother at that time to... Uh, to I think it was HMV in Oxford Street, and we bought some some 78s, and one of them was I can remember was Frankie Vaughan's Heart of a Man. So um, I, I liked music, but I wasn't that involved in music at that age in terms of going to see bands, etc. Yes, and were you kind of aware of that period? Because obviously you got the first Beatles album. Were you aware of that kind of whole sort of counterculture, kind of hippie kind of? Um, I suppose, sort of movement that was going on, especially in London and obviously in San Francisco to another degree and sort of elsewhere around Europe. So I, did, I was wondering if you were sort of kind of fascinated because there was a lot of well, people... Well, I, I, I was a bit too young, I think, to, um, to really know the details of it. I was living in a suburb of London, a place called Shirley near Croydon, and it was it was a relatively sheltered existence. Um, 
It's interesting. I did an interview with someone called Dana Gillespie um, last week. You know, if you've ever heard of Dana Gillespie, but she she was she's pretty much my age, and when she she was in her teens, she was going to the Marquee Club to see bands play. But I was I was I was I didn't go to London on my own at that time, so. It, I was there was only a limited awareness, let's say, what was going on, and I bought the first Beatles album because um, I first heard the Beatles as a friend of mine really liked them, and he'd heard a session they'd done, it must have been a light program, I think, and he'd somehow taped it. He played it to me, yes, and uh, that's how I first heard the Beatles. Yeah, no, it's interesting because Dana Gillespie was in Norwich a few months ago, and I did an interview with her because, obviously, I've, I'm a bit I'm obsessed with David Bowie. So anybody that um, yes had any dealings with David, you know, and and uh, you know, I've sort of managed to track down. So it was great to to sort of talk. Yeah, to Yeah, well, just as an aside, after I did the interview, she took me along to um, a preview of a of a film about the early days of day of David Bowie, uh, which is it's being screened on BBC Two tomorrow night. It is. This is true. Yeah, it's really good. I really enjoy it because I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge Bowie fan as well. Yes. Well, I've managed to be been tracking down anybody you know from George Underwood to El Slick and Mike Garson and even Angie Bowie to sort of you know get their story, which is quite nice. So Dana was amazing because she was so. You know, you don't know when people get older and they've had a bit of a rock and roll life, but her brain was so clear. It was um, incredible. She knew everything was just absolutely on the case. So, yes. Yeah, she's she's a very smart woman. Um, and she's lived a life. She really has lived a life, which one has to admire. Absolutely, and, and didn't get completely damaged. But then, as the 70s progressed, obviously the 60s definitely had a vibe, and then you had that 70s period with glam rock, and you were obviously doing Hawkwind and those kind of bands. Then punk happened. So was the punk period a bit like Stiff Records and Dave Robinson? Was that kind of a big moment for you as a, as a sort of... Uh, well, I, uh, you know, an, an entry into the, uh, the other part of the record, you know, music business. Well, okay, so to, to get it in sequence, I got a job. Let's see, I might get my dates wrong. Um, I want to say 1972, but maybe it was 1974. I got a job working at Bell Records, and Bell Records at that time were very successful um, independent label and they had it was they were pop label they had the basically rollers and shawadi wadi gary glitter glitter band barry blue david cassidy acts like that so um i was working at bell records i was there, I, I was their financial controller because my background is is um is finance and then i got a job at um for a year i was general manager of a label called magnet records another small independent label and they had acts like Chris Rear and Darts, literally Bad Manners. Um, but I stayed a year there, and I started the Cherry Red label in 1978. And the catalyst for starting it was there was a local band who were from Worcester, near Morgan, where we promoted the gigs. And the band were called The Tights. And Richard, one of the guys who um, I was involved with Cherry Red Promotions with, He'd, he'd found the tights and thought they were really good. And we put them in a local studio in Cheltenham. And that's how Cherry One came about. That's how the first single came about. And a few months after that, I left my job at um, Magnet Records to have a go at running the label full time. And of course, 78 was quite pivotal in many ways. There were so many 
although although Stiff had started by then, Ace had started, uh, Rough Trade had started, um, labels like Mutant Factory were just starting around that time. So it was a really important time there with the whole... It wasn't just punk music, but it was punk attitude that anyone could start a band, anyone could start a record label. And that was a wonderfully exciting time, really. Yes. And did you, I mean, did you sort of find, because quite a few people I spoke to when they started their record label all say, God, I had, had no idea what we were really doing. And one person said, I didn't even know what an invoice was. So your financial background, did that give you a little bit more of an, not advantage, but sort of you, you just knew how the, the business side and the accounting side worked for that, that kind of operation. Yeah, well, don't forget, I'd also worked at two record labels. I'd worked at Bell Records, which became Arista Records. Um, uh, basically, what happened was Bell was, the ownership of Bell changed hands in America, and a guy called Clive Davis was brought in to run a new label, and it was called Arista. So I had huge experience there, and I was then general manager of Magnet for a year. So I was one of the few people. And I knew all these guys at the start, like Tony Wilson and Jeff Travis and Daniel Miller. I knew all these guys. And I, I was the one that had not only a financial background, but I actually worked at record labels. They hadn't. Yes. So I did have a huge advantage because I knew, I knew how, how it worked, basically, and, 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 and how to run a business and how to make sure you didn't um, spend more than you, uh, than, 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 you, than you took in. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But yet, <laughs> it's often the flaw in most people's operation. And did you have a, a particular ethos? You know, because with a lot of those little record labels, there was a definitely a kind of an ethos that they had or an image or some vibe. Did you set out with that? You know, because obviously things like Sarah Records or Factory Records and Rough Trade, Kitchenware, they had a, diff- a definite style. But unfortunately, when things change, like they do in the music industry, Often they putter out after five years. So I just wondered how, what, whether, what was kind of behind the drive of Cherry Red. Well, I, I was really the opposite in so far as I like many different kinds of music, and I didn't want to be pigeonholed in terms of having a, a certain genre. And you're right, all those, all those labels had had an image as such, and I really wanted the image of Cherry Red to be that we put out interesting records, we did the best we could, and we weren't tied down to something that would that would hold us back, if you like, in the future. So uh, we were, one way we were image-less, but the fact we didn't have a strong image also gave us an image, you see what I mean? Yes. And did you, I mean, in, in those, you know, as you progressed through the 80s and things kind of were changing quite a lot, especially on the musical front, how did you sort of navigate that kind of next decade? Because you sort of you said you started with that kind of punk period and slight punk post punk, but obviously, you know things do change. All those kind of artists go, and then suddenly the the world of you know there was the the mainstream pop scene, and then you had this huge amount of independent stuff going on. I just wondered how you sort of navigated that next decade. Well, the independent chart started in 1980, the beginning. It was my idea originally, the independent chart, and that that tended to be quite an important factor each week to see what was in the independent single and, what, and the independent album chart. And as the 80s progressed, what happened was there was labels appearing which were owned by the major companies, but they were like boutique labels and they were put through independent distribution. And the independent distribution meant they were eligible for the independent chart. So it all started to get confused and 
independent got shortened to indie, and indie became like a marketing genre, which had nothing to do with the word independent, which means you're not, you are independent, you're not owned by somebody else. So it, it all got confused and more difficult, and the independent charts were used by the major companies to break new acts, or to start breaking an act. And it, it kind of, um, it meant it was much harder for independent acts to make a living. Um, obviously, obviously, the independent, the independent labels um, that did survive the, the rough trades and, 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 and the mutes factories went down around that time, obviously. But mute survived rough trade, survived, and new ones started up. Cooking vinyl started. Um, I think Domino started around that time. So, but it, it, the game changed, and it, it wasn't like you could put out a great independent single and press two or three thousand, and they they would sell, and you'd press another one, etc. That's how it worked in the in the in the late seventies. It was different in the late eighties, and so towards the end of the eighties, or towards the end of the eighties, um, we changed our business model to some extent and we started to um, go more into catalogue reissues and we we brought up the rights to labels like Flick Knife and Red Rhino, Intape, No Future um, and we saw this opportunity in catalogue to do catalogue really well because at that point no one was doing it very well and that, and that became an important part of how we ran our business. We still signed some new bands and we tried with that but it was harder and harder to get any real movement with a new act because you had to spend a lot more money yes. to compete with the major companies that had their if you like pseudo independent labels so there was a change in our business model around that time and it was kind of forced on us um, and if you look at the history of the labels that did survive that period rough trade when they had their huge success with the smiths that sent them actually into bankruptcy because uh, they had the huge success. But with, with, with success also comes more challenging cash flow problems. Um, you have to get more staff. And then if you then go through a relatively slow period for a year or two, you can't cover your overheads. And I know in the end, that's why Daniel Miller's sold mute because it was so up and down. One year, he would have a new Depeche album or Razor album and do really, really well. Next year, he didn't. And he'd make a big loss, yes. and he just didn't want to be in this ups and downs of the uh, of the way it was going in terms of the of the finances. So it became much much harder to run an independent label. So as I say, we went more into catalogue, and then a few years later, we started to license from the major companies. At that time, EMI was obviously uh, was a standalone company, so it was EMI, Universal. Uh, Sony and Warner's we licensed from them all and uh, on catalogue and that 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 helped us to evolve and really get very good at doing catalogue and that's these days we're more much more a catalogue company than anything else even though we do do new recordings we um, we do we work with Hawkwind we've done their last three studio, studio albums we worked with The Fall for the last six years before Mark E. Smith died we put out four albums by them and we work with people like Claudia Bruken and Luke Haynes and John Wobble we work, all kinds of interesting characters that we enjoy working with so yes it's changed many times over the years 
Fantastic. It's amazing. <laughs> so many people you were just talking there. I thought, God, I've done interviews with all of them, which is great. But just to go, <laughs> I know, I've been, I've been having such fun with this show. But just going back, unfortunately, all the work, but there was a particular record that you put out in um, 82, which was kind of one of those game changers. Well, I thought it was. Pillow, Pillows and Prayers, that compilation yes. that you put out, the 17 tracks for 99p, yeah. um, which obviously, did you, when you were doing that, did you, I mean, what was, I mean, I mean, it's probably hard to remember because obviously, you know, that was quite unheard of. And yet it turned out to be this, you know, this very iconic compilation and it kind of captured a certain kind of zeitgeist at that period. And I just wondered, you know, was that your idea? No, it was the idea of Mike Hallway, who was our then A&R man. And um, he actually got the idea because I think it was Virgin put out a very cheap sampler to um, help promote some of their um, newer acts. And so it wasn't actually, an, it wasn't an original idea as such as, as Virgin had done it first, but Mike was really keen to keep the album less than a pound. And we, so it was 99p as you said, and we, and we, so what we did was we had to get all the acts to appear on there for nothing we had to do a deal with our distributor to take less of a percentage. We still had to pay the mechanical royalties, the publishing royalty, but we did sell it at cost for us, so we made no money out of it. But we sold 120,000 albums, and it was number one on the independent album chart for many weeks, and it was a seminal album, and Mike was very clever who he put on there, because he put a, people like Quentin Crisp on there, spoken word. There was a catalog track on there, um, a track by a band called, a psychedelic band called The Misunderstood, as well as the Marine Girls and Tracy Thorne and Ben Watt and Arnett and Garza and Felt and all the current acts we were working on. And that did help a lot in the exposure of those acts. And uh, soon after that, um, Tracy and Ben, in fact, they'd already done one track of everything but the girl that was on the album. But they, but they obviously found big, big success. And yes. I probably blows into airs with a small part of their journey to to success. Yes, well, it definitely did sort of capture that moment, and it did promote a lot of those bands. And and obviously, you had quite a kind of roster of people on on that uh, compilation. And then obviously, releasing albums after that, so it became something. And I remember then in the eighties, a lot of um, artists used to put you know put a sticker saying "Pay no more than you know two ninety nine and one ninety nine. And I just always thought, I wonder if it kind of that idea came from, you know, that particular compilation that you did, because that um, it seemed radical at the time, put it that way. Yeah, well, it was important to us that it was sold at less than a pound, um, and it did say pay, pay no more than 99p. Um, but as I say, it wasn't easy to do, because you had to get everyone to, all the artists to appear for nothing, and even the distributor had to take, take a lesser cut, so yes. there was work behind the scenes to get that, to get that functional. Yes. And then also, you know, because your catalogue is quite amazing and, and kind of bonkers at the same time, because you've got such kind of extreme artists. That you, you also launched Anagram Records as well, which was kind of those pe other people that were quite far out there, for like, you know, Alien Sex Fiend and the yeah. Angelic Upstarts as well. So was that another idea that came from the team or was that a particular individual who wanted to sort of increase kind of the, the roster of different bands, but in a slightly different way? Yeah, well, what happened was that 
Michael Way wasn't an originally wasn't originally involved with Trevor. He joined in about two years after after Dead Kennedys broke, and we just to start with, it was almost pretty much just me the label. Um, and then after the, the Dead Kennedys had their top forty album with Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, I was able to cast around a little bit, and I had two people that were helping me out with um, on the label. Um, uh, and I could pay them for doing that. So Mike became the A&R man. And um, he wanted Trey Red, a little bit contrary to my original idea, to have a little little bit more of a, a focused image in terms of the, the music. So he signed all those acts, Silas and Garza, I mentioned Felt, Ben and Tracy, etc. And we were, we we also had a publishing company where we, where we um, um, signed writers. And we had quite a lot of punk artists who were signed to the, the publishing company. And Mike didn't want those artists to make records for, to come out in Cherry Red because the, he wanted Cherry to have a certain image for a time. And so we just came out with an idea in the office. Actually, it was Theo who used to run Cherry uh, Red, Red Music. It was his idea, Anagram. He thought of the name. And the name, he thought of it, Anagram didn't have an image as such, so we would give it an image by the records released. And as you're right, the first the first single was Ignore the Machine by Alien Sex Fiend. And we've just done actually a new album by them a few weeks ago, double album by them, by the Fiends. And then we had the uh, the upstarts, the vibrators, lots of interesting punk and goth bands who are on Anagram. Yes, it definitely had a cost. Yes, I've, I've, I did speak to the members of Alien Sex Fiend. Well, there are a couple, aren't they? So that was all rather... Yes, Nick cool. and Chris, yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, so that was all really interesting because, you know, the one thing that I noticed recently is that, that, that often 30 years seem to be a pass in a time where things kind of, you don't really have that much significance and then suddenly it's like, oh my God, that's amazing because last year there, there was two books that came out kind of talk, documenting, you know, like the fanzines of the 80s especially and a bit about the punk world but mostly a lot about the, the fanzine world and I sort of realised that a lot of the compilations that you bring out and you brought out a compilation which was the C86 one but you repackaged yeah. it and then you did 87, 88 and 89 and it yeah. was this, this kind of an, a 30-year kind of, passing of time do you is that something that you have become you know have always been aware of that suddenly when something's happening you know immediately afterwards it's like people are just kind of you know not that bothered but then suddenly there's a moment where people go oh my god that's incredible let we need to preserve that and 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 suddenly it becomes kind of a historic document i just wondered you know because of a lot of the stuff that you bring out is is kind of cataloging and archiving i just wondered if you'd you know, what were your feelings about that were? Well, I, you know, but p- people say to me, well, what's it like? You, you own a record label and you're not really into A&R. And I say, well, that's not true, really. Okay, we're not signing, we're not really signing new acts. Well, we, we do a very occasional new act, but not very many. But I'm a great believer in historical A&R insofar as there's so many great tracks came out all those years ago. And a lot of, a lot of them at the time didn't create much fuss. Some of them created no fuss at all. So they're lost. And I just love the fact that we go back and we look at different eras and genres and geographical areas and we put together compilations that not only have, like we did a Manchester one, for instance, a seven CD um, Manchester box set came out about 18 months ago and it started with the Buzzcocks, ends with Oasis. And in between, 
There's a load of tracks that I would challenge even the biggest sort of Manchester fan probably has never heard of. And I just see that as brilliant that we can do that. We can go back and we can track down these artists who probably most, most of them were self-released or on very small labels. And we can give them a hearing all those years later. And we've just put out um, one, of our, one of our other labels, RPM, we put out um, a box set of, of glam bands that, again, never, never really made it. Uh, called All the Young Drukes. I'm just playing that in the car at the moment. And there again, there's loads of bands that no one will ever, ever have heard of, or they've forgotten about, who've done something in their own way really unique. And I think that's part of what Trey Red loves to do these days. We love to, we like to look forward to a degree, of course, and we do look at the current things, and we do work, as I said, with, with bands doing new recordings. But we also like to look back and see... What we can do, what we just put out a Scottish one, uh, Big Girl Dreams, which is um, Scottish independent music from 77 to 89. Um, I think that would do really well. It's just, just come out or it's just coming out. I'm not sure. I've got a copy here, but it may not be available yet. And then um, we did a Liverpool one, for instance. So we're doing regions. We've also done genres within years, as you mentioned, 88, 89, C88, C89. So we've got lots, and we've, and we've done really obscure electronic music from different eras. And we've got experts. People just love these periods. Because if I have to give them a track listing, some cases, it would, I tell you, it would be really sketchy because my knowledge on certain things is not very good, especially on extreme electronic music. But then we've got people that work either for Trey Red or, or as consultants, who this, this is their passion in life. It's putting together these compilations. And as long as we think we can sell a few, we do it. Yes. Because we just love exposing these tracks. Well, I have to say, I'm hugely grateful because of, cause it has it's helped me so much. Because when you know I first started, I suppose, looking back, not in a kind of like the good old days, but just thinking, oh, I'd love to hear that song again. It was really, I don't know, there was quite a few that you found for those compilations, the C86 to 89, which were just released on Flexidisc and actually trying to find yeah. a copy of it. And there might be someone had put something up on YouTube. But, you know, generally it was impossible to get hold of some of that stuff. And then suddenly it's, oh, there's a fantastic compilation. Someone's done all that work. And then a few years ago, there was a Terry and Jerry one. There's the Wolf Hands. There was, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you know, all these bands who were on those little labels that I slightly mentioned earlier and they disappeared and probably, I don't know what the mechanics is, but then suddenly they get sort of dusted down, given nice sleeve notes and presented, and you think, oh, that's such a relief. I can now listen to it and not have to struggle, you know, searching on the dark web, as we say. So how does that work? I mean, when, uh, when somebody thinks, oh, that's a really good idea, say in the 80s, I'll start a record label, do it for three years, realise <laughs> their accounting skills were pretty bad and the musical scene has changed and they've fallen out with everybody that they started with, you know, which is the common story, um, and then nothing happens, then how do you then kind of say, we'll, we'll take that and then we'll, we'll dust it down and give it a nice, shiny compilation? How does, you know, how does that kind of work? I suppose as a fan, I have no idea. Well, those two acts you mentioned, Wolfhounds and Terry and Jerry. Wolfhounds were on Midnight Music, Terry and Jerry were in tape. And we bought both those labels many years ago, so we now own those, all those tracks. So they're, they're relatively easy. 
where 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 we don't own or or, hunt, or have under license a certain label, then we have to track them down. And we also license from the major companies because sometimes acts obviously start off independent inside of one of the majors, but we're we're able to license from the three big majors now, Sony, Warner's, and Universal. So we track them down. Um, and, and and the wonderful thing about the internet is if you if if you put the word out there. There's going to be somebody somewhere who knows somebody that was in the band and knows, and knows where they are now. So it is a lot of work, a lot of detective work, but it's fun work. And then we often start with an idea for a compilation, put the idea out there and, and contact somebody in some band. They said, well, have you thought of using this one as well? So it takes this kind of, this process starts and you don't end up where you started. You end up with new tracks that you didn't even know existed because people have told you about them yes and that's the fun of it to a large degree it, it, it's continual discovery and it, everything's legally licensed we um if it's not owned by a label we find the band and we license from them so everybody earns a few bob it's not a lot obviously if you're on a compilation with another 50 or 100 tracks you don't earn a lot but you earn something yes and you've got your uh what, what is forgotten is is kind of now in the domain again and and uh that all the young Druids I mentioned got a four-page review in Uncut this month, for instance. So it's out there, and it gets maybe a tiny bit of radio play, and um, they're all stars again for a, a few weeks. Yes, I like that thing you said about archiving. You know, that is that's something I've you know really enjoy as well because otherwise you just realise that you know, one day someone would just going to clear out a box of stuff and go, oh, I have no idea, we'll just dump it. And it could have been the master tapes or some interesting sleeve notes or some flyers that, you know, you, you know, you just want someone to put it in as an archive and then digitalize it or just have it so that it doesn't then get lost and put in landfill. So that for me is kind of why I'm always so grateful for the, the cherry red kind of label. And the other thing that I noticed, because I've tracked down bands, I thought, God, I really want to get an interview with this particular band. And it's taken a while, but eventually I find someone. And, and often they, that's quite interesting because they just put out a load of flexi discs and a few cassettes and a John Peel session. And then they you know, broke up and never thought about it since. And, and often the person said, you know, oh, actually, the only thing I'd like now isn't about the money. It's like, I just wished I could have a CD of that, you know, of our work compiled with some nice sleeve notes. So, so I realised that as, as people get older and t- the passing of time, and I always think 30 years seem to be some sort of magical number, people quite enjoy that as well. So that, to, to say, well, at least, least I've got some sort of completion of that period that happened back in that decade, which is quite a nice thing. Yeah, I think you're right. People just thought when they had the band, this is the maybe a route to stardom, fame and fortune. It doesn't happen, obviously. And then they just like to be seen to do something valuable all those years later. Yes. And just, I mean, were there ever a time within your the, the, in the business where things, you know, you, you had a tricky period? I didn't know if there's ever been a difficult period with Cherry Red and you thought, God, we're going to have to, as, as I think Winston Churchill said, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. I didn't know if you ever had any moments like that with the record label. Of course, we had many. Um, uh, you know, our distributor went bankrupt twice and they're saying large sums of money and many we, we couldn't get the stock out. And it happened a few years ago. A Pinnacle Ad distributor went bankrupt, bankrupt the second time and just before Christmas and we had all these mail order orders we couldn't get out and 
We couldn't supply orders to shops and to export. That was a terrible two months. Um, so that's happened twice with distributors. And then it's always been challenging when the industry's changed dramatically. So when, 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 when everything changed, or it's been a process with the st streaming becoming more and more predominant. It's harder to find um, outlets for physical records. It, really what we've had to do is we, 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 we've helped along with other people, to reinvent the physical. And the physical now is more and more the artifact. And that's why we're doing so many box sets, because it's more, it, each box set tells a story, either of a band's career or a, a genre or a city or a time frame or whatever. So it becomes more, the, the physical becomes more and more important how you present it, also what it contains. But it really needs to be something meaningful meaningful to enough people and that of course has been quite a dramatic transformation and now you 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 meet people that run labels they have never put out a physical record it's all streaming so we've had our we've had our challenge there um we had a, quite a major challenge um just after pillows and prayers came out because michael way who was a very good a and r man he got he got seduced by the lure of Warner Brothers and left and took everything but the girl with him, a monochrome set and some other acts. So I had to, I had to kind of regroup and reinvent Cherry Red without him because he'd become very, very much the kind of focal point on the creative side. So there's been, there's been many challenges over the years. Um, and when, when we went into more into catalogue again, the, the, the business model we had of taking new bands and, and um, trying to make money out of putting, or, or at least not losing money on putting albums out, became harder and harder because it was more and more competitive with major labels. As I said earlier, starting boutique uh, independent labels that weren't real independent labels and putting lots of money behind them. So we, we, we've had ups and downs, definitely. Now we're... We we own so many tracks, and you know we have we have a pretty large turnover. We have 18 staff full time at Trey Red now. It's quite a, quite an operation to compare what it used to be. So we're much more solid now. But we always have to look ahead to see, and we we have we continue looking. Well, we're okay now. What's going to happen in three years? What's going to happen in five years? We have to keep looking at that. Yes, God. It is a, it's a bit like playing, play, being a football manager. I suppose you're only as good as your next game and next season, really, aren't you? And was there... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm heavily into football as well, so there's many parallels, yeah. <laughs> yes, this is true. You don't want to end up like Liverpool. Well, actually, Liverpool are doing quite well now, but you don't want to be that kind of period where they, they completely lost their way and, you know... They were they were a great team once, but not anymore. Anyway, enough about football. Was there any? <laughs> I was a bit obsessed with football in my youth. Um, yeah. So, was there any particular artist or, or or band that you particularly enjoyed working with during your period? Well, I don't like I don't like to single people out really because there's so many rich characters we've worked with. I think one of the ones we've worked with the longest is Lawrence, who was had felt, and then he had denim. And he now has Go Kart Mozart, and we we put out the first five Felt albums. Then he was with Creation for five albums. Then he put three Denim albums out with various labels, and now he's back with us. And we work with him on Go Kart Mozart. We work with him on putting um, reissues out of all ten Felt albums. He was in the office when I was last in there a couple of days ago, and and so 
he, he's actually not easy to work with, but we love him at Trevor. He's, he's such a great character, but he's not always straightforward to work with. And I think what we like is we like characters, we like creative people. Mark, Mark E. Smith was not the easiest to work with, but we always managed to work it out with him. Um, Wobble, we work with him for a time. He can be a bit up and down, but we basically we're mates. We get on fine. So, and Hawkwind again are not always an easy band, but we have a good relationship. It's like I think I think when you work with anyone who works um, at a label will know when you work with creative people, everyone's different. Everyone has their pluses and minus, and you have to make a decision on who you want to work with and you, and, and and who you don't. And you have to most importantly enjoy going in the office in the morning and look forward mostly to what you're going to do and you're going to have some people that sometimes are difficult yeah. but other times they're a pleasure to work with that's the way it is and obviously you know on the news this coming over last week is uh, because because uh, there was seemed to be this new movement to pledge music and then you know it all sounded like it was all too good to be true and now it doesn't sound so brilliant do you sort of also keep your eye on those kind of movements and think oh dear yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting turn of events because obviously that must feel like a threat to a potential record label. But then when the sort of the kind of honeymoon period goes with that kind of scheme and it doesn't seem so good, you must almost think, oh, dear, I've seen things like that before, but in a different context. Well, I thought Pledge was a good idea and I have a very good friend who works at Pledge and I, I knew... I knew ages ago that they, they were in financial trouble. I, I wasn't going to gossip about them, though. Um, but I think that was to do with poor ownership in America. I think, actually, the um, idea of a place like company is quite a good idea. Um, but when you try and turn it into a, a big operation and you've got owners that are distant from running, running the business, then you, you're going to get into trouble. Um, but, yeah, I, I think people, I think acts that are saying well you can invest you can put some money into a, an album we can't afford it on our own and in return for that you get a signed copy and if you pay a bit more you get dinner with us as well and whatever whatever, whatever sort of carrots they're uh, they're 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 kind of dangling for a bit more money i think that's not a bad idea and if as i say if it gets banned in the studio that couldn't afford it otherwise i think that's brilliant yes but um, yes, until <laughs> it's no threat to us because we're very solid in what we do. Um, we we have a fairly distinctive things that we're very good at, and we and we and we do well. Um, and um, we you know we, we, we're, we're always looking at new ways to tweak the business and move forward. And, and these and the, and these sort of multi multi disc box sets are doing really really well. Yes, and they're a lot of work to put together. It's not someone. And suddenly say, well, I'm going to do what Cherry Red does. It, it takes years to build a relationship with Sony and Warners and, uh, and Universal to get the license rights. And it's a lot of work just tracking down the, uh, the bands. And we have a great reputation because we pay people. Everyone knows we're going to pay our royalties. And that's, that's, a huge, that's a hugely good starting point. Yes. Well... That is amazing. Well, look, Ian, thank you ever so much. I think I got quite a bit there, but it's been great. And it's interesting that because I do in this show, the artists that have been the most popular that I've noticed because of putting it on a podcast, there's always been people like, you know, like Felt or Lawrence and Felt or Momus or Liebark. And so it's kind of interesting. That's why I sort of keep coming across Cherry Red and thinking, 
Yes, you know, I sort of realised the importance, plus all those compilations, and including that, you, as you mentioned, you had that Liverpool one and then the Manchester one, and then a slightly Gothic yeah. one, and then this year you've got this um, Scottish one as well. And, you know, again, it's kind of... Hoovering sounds a bit kind of clinical, but it's great that you managed to sort of get the really obscure bands because actually that's kind of the ones that often the fanboy like myself kind of go, oh, thank God someone's done all that work. And, oh, look, there's a, there's a couple of paragraphs and a, and a picture of the sleeve as well. So I have to say we, we are hugely um, grateful for the, all the work you do, actually. Good. Well, someone like Liebert won't, Liebert won't easy. <laughs> I, I always maintain a decent relationship. But to start with, they, they were so fixed in what they wanted. It wasn't always easy working. And there's a film just come out about Liebert, actually, and it was, it by, it was financed by Slov- a Slovakian TV company. It's got a premiere in London, I think, next week or the week after. Yeah, they're, they're a very interesting band, band lie back. Yes. Well, I, I knew there was one, a film came out when they did that. Um, was it North Korea they played, that concert? They played, yeah, that's, this is separate, though. This, this is a documentary about the history of the band. Oh, which, wow. And they, they came into Cherry Red and they interviewed myself and John Hollingsworth, who was the A&R guy who signed them at the time. Um, and it's premiered, I think I'm going to miss it, I've got something else on, but it's premiered um, Shepherd's Bush, yeah, on the 1st of, uh, on the 1st of March. They're doing a set as well, but they're, uh, they're showing the film first. Oh, well I should know that day because that's my birthday as well. And there I you t- go. There you go, I could come to London and see them. Anyway, look, this is amazing. Oh, so good I'll, luck with it. Anyway. Yeah, and I'll, when I put it out, I'll, I'll um, tell you, or I'll tweet it. and Because I often talk to Matt, who's your you know, man in... Matt Tingham, yeah. Yes, yeah. he's on the ball. Well, yeah, if, if you, you give him the details, we'll keep, I'm sure he'll put it on our social media. You get some more people going in there then, yeah. Yeah, look, well, have a great day, and thank you again. I really appreciate it. All right, David, take care. You too, okay. take care. Bye-bye. Cheers.